Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we're going to be interviewing Dan Shepard, owner of a 300-acre pecan farm, where he's been intercropping a variety of crops in between the tree lines. This is a very special interview because we don't often speak to somebody that's done this work on such scale. So this was fascinating and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dan. Welcome on the podcast. Well, thank you, Dimitri. Um, to start off with, it would be really good to have an understanding of, of you and your farm and what you're producing at the moment. Well, uh, first, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about, about Shepherd Farms, my uh, my family got into farming business in about 1969. Uh, we bought a fairly sized farm, and my father always wanted to raise uh, pecans. So, uh, actually, he bought 20 acres to begin with uh, to plant some pecan trees on, and then uh, a farm right next to it. I remember uh, climbing up on the levee to look out uh, over this uh, farm we own now. Also, that I, after my dad was showing me the 20 acres he bought, I said, "Gee, pop, you." Uh, ought to buy this place. You could plant a lot of pecan trees. And he said, well, it is for sale. And sure enough, uh, ended up a year or two later, we ended up buying the larger farm. And per se, we never planted pecan trees on, on that little 20 acres there. But we do, we do now have about uh, 300 acres in pecan orchards. Uh, out of that, there's about 200 of them, acres of it that are in production. Uh, totally, the farm has about 4,000 acres which means there's about 3,000 acres of row crop, which is mainly corn and soybean production. And uh, the problem with it is that I do not do the 3,000 acre production on the farm of corn and soybeans. It's a situation where I feel that uh, I am too uh, small to be a big farmer, too big to be a small farmer. So uh, we have a, a share crop basis with another large farmer that takes care of the other farming ground for us on that. Mine had to have many were on the river bottoms here uh, in northern Missouri. Uh, it, uh, it gets hot in the summertime and cold in the winter. Yeah, we're, uh, I don't really know what latitude and stuff we were at, but uh, we'd be about the same as uh, oh, uh, northern France, northern Germany, that sort of type of weather probably, but we have a little bit hotter summers than what you all have out there. So uh, that's a little bit about the farm. Mainly my main business is the pecan business. It takes up about uh, 80% of our time. The rest of the 10, 20% is taken up on care and maintenance of, uh, of buildings, levees, uh, yards, uh, roads, uh, a fairly good sized levee system that protects our uh, row crop and pecan orchards from, uh, from river flooding. Uh, my job is, uh, I'm 65 years old. I'm the manager. I have two full-time employees plus my wife. Uh, we have a small retail store on the farm. We're open three months out of the year where we process and sell the uh, pecans that we raise. So we're pretty well vertically integrated, I guess you might say. So uh, it makes a, a good way where we can add value to our product and stuff. And we can go into that a little later if you want to. So. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. 
and that's about it for the farm. Right now we're in the process of pruning trees. Uh, we're about to get that done. We, uh, the young trees, we prune those every year. Our older orchards that are, you know, some of them are up to 40 years old now. We try and prune those about once every 10 years to get rid of lower hanging limbs and stuff to keep them out of the equipment and that sort of thing. So, and uh, also doing some thinning in the orchards. We're always thinning trees out. So uh, right now that's pretty what we're doing. We just finished processing all the pecans that uh, we raised. Plus we do a little uh, <clears throat> custom processing for a few other growers around, small growers that uh, uh, want to retail their pecans out also, but we go ahead and process them for them this time of year and we just finished that up so uh as the weather turns bad and the snow comes and stuff we'll you start working on equipment to harvesters uh tractors mowers all other equipment stuff plus all the process equipment will be pulled in and wars painted uh, cleaned and all that that sort of stuff that's about what we're doing right now nice and could you tell me a bit more about how old your pecan orchards are well, our main orchard we have is was planted the nuts in 81, so it's right at 40 years old now. Uh, we have an experimental orchard was about 20 acres, and that was planted in 71. Uh, with us being just about as far north as you can raise a pecan, you really can't raise them much farther north. We don't have the heat units or the daylight time and stuff, and so we're right there on the very edge. So the trees and the varieties that we have and we graft to, are not the big southern varieties like they have in the south. So we have to, uh, my dad started a, a experimental orchard uh, of known varieties and uh, varieties of native varieties around here that tend to be fairly well. And from there, we kind of decided on what we wanted to, to put our other orchard into and graft it to. So because all our trees are grafted, that way we know what, what, uh, what our what trees are going to produce. So... Uh, that was it. The other, like I said, the other orchard was planted in 81. We planted the nuts where we wanted a tree. Um, in the process, we've been thinning out and thinning. We've probably taken three fourths of the trees out that, that we've planted and probably within another 10 or 15 years, we'll take half those trees with another half of the orchard out. So, uh, so you're, it works a little better. You're thinning them because they're getting too big now and they're starting to the, the crowns are starting to touch or what's, what's the reason? That's true. That we have a rule. We never want a pecan tree to touch another pecan tree that we get mm. plenty of lights, uh, you know, sunlight around the tree. We also get uh, a nice air movement and stuff where the trees tend to dry out in the mornings after heavy dews. Uh, and it helps uh, hold down the fungus uh, problems we have like scab and other things. Luckily we're not as bad as they are in the Southeast, like in Georgia and Florida where they, you know, they have a tremendous amount of trouble with what we call scab. It's mm. a fungus disease. It gets on the leaves and the nuts and stuff. And uh, if you keep them thinned out and, and where you get good air movement, you, you don't, it lessens your scab problems and stuff. And uh, like I tell people is, you know, you take half your orchard out, you'll double your production just because uh, trees aren't fighting for sunlight and trees aren't fighting for water and nutrients and that sort of stuff. So yeah. it's pretty nice. And um, just to give us a bit of a visual idea, how tall and how wide are, are, are your 40-year-old trees that you planted in 81? All right. Um, our main rows and stuff, are, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to have to put this in, uh, in, in, in feet and stuff because uh, uh, I never really grew up with a metric system. So you'll have, to bear, with, you'll have to bear with me on that. We, uh, we pretty well planted all our trees in 40-foot rows. And the reason for that was is because of fertilizer, you know, 
we fertilize our trees fairly heavy for production reasons and stuff and and also taking stuff off and we were also farm between them but that's what um that's what a fertilizer spreads is it was 40 feet uh now fertilizer spreads 50 feet to 80 feet whatever so you know spacing is was uh not quite as critical now as maybe what it was back then because uh, that's just about what we could, uh, you know, for fertility wise to, to spread the fertilizer on, they couldn't really be much farther than 40 feet apart. Uh, the orchards we do plant are also in the trees were 40 feet apart down the row. Uh, especially all the new orchards we planted, we plant them where they're checked, where we could farm east and west or north and south or, or, or diagonal. So the trees were spaced that way, uh, in the newer orchards the other older orchards were just uh, 40 feet apart and the trees were just stepped off down the down the row of you know anywhere from 15 to 18 feet we planted some nuts in there so that's kind of kind of an odd spacing but uh you know if i was doing it over now on an agro force you do i'd probably go 60 feet and we can maybe get into some reasons later on about that okay so when you started planting them in the old orchards um they were about you said 15 to 18 feet between the trees on the line. What are they now? How? What's the spacing now after having thinned uh, uh, three quarters? Most of them are at least uh, probably 40, and some, a lot of them are 60 or 80 feet apart. Okay. Mainly 60. I'd probably say close to 60 feet is, is about average on them now. Down the rows okay. that are put in the road, and their trees are 40 feet apart in the rows. So. And, I, and out of curiosity, how tall are they? Oh, some of those trees are probably getting up to 60 feet tall. Oh, wow. Nice. That must be so beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's kind of uh, fooling, you know, people how tall the, you know, those trees really get. But when you, when you cut one down and lay him down, you know, and he's uh, 50, 60 feet tall, you know, it it takes a while to, uh, you know, you want to, you want to knock him down or cut him. If you, when we're thinning on those trees, we'll, uh, kind of be careful where you place it because yeah, you sure. the tree's pretty easy. Mm. And uh, to kind of finish off the, the, the context of, of your farm, uh, b- the brief context of your farm, I should say, um, what kind of fertilization and irrigation do you do um, in your orchard? Okay. Fertilizer and stuff, uh, macons tend to be a, a fairly big uh, user of, uh, of nitrogen. It depends on what we're doing with the orchard. If we're cutting hay off of it, we would probably go a hundred, about a hundred units of nitrogen, about uh, uh, thirty units of potassium, and 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 uh, about fifty units of, of phosphorus and stuff. So that uh, that's pretty well normal. What we use, maybe that if we're cutting hay, we'll uh, we'll double up on the P and K. But we still tend to put about 120 to 140 units of nitrogen on. Uh, that tends to be a lot. As far as irrigation, in our part of the country, we have no irrigation water. Number one is is that we have no groundwater that uh, we can irrigate with. Um, so that's out of the deal. We could irrigate out of the river, but normally when it gets really dry, the river quits running. So that really doesn't uh, work very well. So, and we're in a situation where we normally get enough rainfall to raise our crop. So we don't, uh, mainly we'll have more trouble with too much water than not enough water. 
So luckily we don't, we don't have the irrigations and, and all the work with the irrigation systems on it. Okay. Interesting. And so is, is your soil quite uh, deep? Do you have, uh, do the trees have access to, to, to groundwater throughout the season or is it quite, uh, um, it varies, you know, I mean, we can get some dry weather and stuff and, and ground gets, uh, fairly, you know, fairly dry and stuff. The main thing is, is that the pecan tree roots are normally only about 12 to 18 inches below the surface of the soil. Uh, we do have, uh, like being bottomland soil, uh, the better the soil, the better the trees does, the, you know, the better the, uh, water holding capacity of it is. And some of the orchard, some spots in the orchard, we have a fairly high clay content, which, uh, and you can, you can really tell the difference in a soil in, in a, in a larger orchard where you have multiple types of soil types out there. You can, uh, you know, the soils that are not quite as good, uh, definitely the trees aren't quite as big, tall and productions down compared to some of the soil that, uh, that maybe some of the very best in the orchard. And those trees tend to do a, a lot, lot better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so basically, today, what I what I wanted to do is um, kind of build on with some of the interviews that you've already given, especially with uh, the Savannah Institute, um, which I advise all our listeners to go check out to have a kind of an in-depth understanding of um, of what pecan production is like. You know, you talk a lot about about the pecan tree, about the nut, how it's processed and etc. And what I wanted to try and do today is to really go into um, the, the agroforestry bits um, and, and by that talking more detail uh, about your experience with intercropping, um, but also talking about the strategy of the farm because that's something that I think would be really interesting to delve into with you. Um, and so leading on from that, one of the first questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, when, when you look at your, your previous talks, you talk about a lot of different types of productions. Um, you're talking about, um, um, you, 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 you had buffalo at some point, you, had, um, you have the row crops, of course, at the moment, um, 3,000 acres of that. Uh, you had cattle, uh, you were also producing a type of grass uh, seed. So I'd love to know a bit, of, a bit more about why did you decide to diversify the farm so much? Well, you know, I, I guess it comes back to my father. Um, we always had a saying is that you can make a little money doing what everybody else does, but you stand to make a lot more doing what nobody else is doing. We also like the idea, you know, that we could set a price for our product where we could somewhat pretty well guarantee us a, a profit uh, instead of taking what somebody wants to give us for it. Um, you know, when you have livestock, cattle, you know, or hogs or chickens or uh, corn or soybeans, you know, it depends on what somebody, uh, you know, on uh, the market is what they're going to give you for it. Uh, farming is completely backwards than any other business that I know of. And so we tried to, to take that farm bill where we could, you know, sell our, our products on the farm, whether it be Eastern gamma grass seed. Uh, we raised the seed. We were pretty well the, the main growers of it in the, in the nation. Uh, definitely the largest wow. we could set our price exactly you know where we could we could make a you know a, a nice decent profit off of it the same way with the bison business of the american buffalo um we uh, had store on the farm here we sold breeding stock we also sold meat and stuff that way we could you know set the price where we could pretty well guarantee us a profit on that sort of stuff the pecans worked out the same way with us retailing 
uh, our pecan crop, we can set a price on it uh, where we can guarantee us a, a profit on it. And, and uh, a profit, uh, profit's a lot better than losses. I, I, I agree with that. It, 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 it lets <laughs> you buy new equipment, new toys, uh, new buildings, new concrete, whatever else you want to buy. So uh, it makes it instead of having to struggle all the time and, and try to, to come up with, uh, you know, the, the funds to run the farm. Um, but if if you're you're talking about you know setting the price, that means that what you are producing and what you are producing, um, you're clearly not selling it on the wholesale commodity markets, right? That's correct. You know, all the years we've been in the pecan business, uh, a year ago we sold, uh, uh, we had a, a tremendous crop year on pecans, and uh, you know we had to sell quite a bit of our pecan crop to uh, some to what we call shellers or accumulators that uh, you know buy millions and millions of pounds of pecans a year and they shell them and 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 then make those through the you know through the commercial markets and stuff whereas my market is, is i sell directly to the consumer to the little old lady that you know bakes some of the best cookies in the world for our grandkids and stuff and she comes out and buys 20 or 30 dollars worth of pecans from me and 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 that sort of thing that sort of people and that uh that helps out a lot. I also sell some to bulk food stores, you know, small independent grocery store sort of things where they can resell them to there. Uh, they get them a little cheaper price, but I move a, move quite a bit of product that way. But it's not like selling just the whole pecans. They're already processed pretty well for those sort of deals. So we do the processing here, which in terms mean you know, we can add added value to it. And that makes a lot of sense. When you have so many different types of production, um clearly it's it seems at least that there would be um some challenges as well in terms of um you know the practicality of managing so many different enterprises at the same time and um also you know on the workload but also on knowledge you know having the knowledge to be able to manage all of that and, and so i'm curious to know you know in time in the history of the throughout the history of the farm and until now how did you manage those those challenges that we often see with diversified operations Really, it was really it was really easy to to do that fairly well because the three main items we had, which was was the American buffalo, or the the, the bison business, uh, the eastern gamma grass seed, which is the native warm season grass seed, and then of course the pecans. Um, the thing about it was this is that uh, they all pretty well interacted well, and it was a good way to keep my employees busy year round. Uh, right now, I'm a little be a little over on on employees but uh since we're just in the pecan business or sort of it but uh it worked out better because in the summertime there wasn't a whole lot to do to speak of with the bison business buffalo business we put hay up for a couple of months uh then after that we'd start uh rest of summer mowing pastures mowing orchards getting ready for that and then come fall we would harvest pecans process them the buffalo pretty well took uh not a lot of care the gamma grass seed business came off in the middle of summer and pretty well set down until about, oh, about this time of year, we started, uh, doing the seed business and doing seed, which worked out real well for that, uh, pretty well that, and then ship seed out normally to about the middle of June. So it, a lot of different things going on, but it worked real well to keep the employees busy year round. Uh, we really never had a slack time, which was kind of nice. Um, it was uh 
a situation. I got out of the grass seed business. We had a terrible flood. I lost most of my seed fields. Um, and I'll be truthful. I was probably spending about 80% of my time with the grass seed business, but it was a high profit part of the farm. Uh, after spending about 20 years with a headset on sitting at a desk, about 80% of my time, uh, selling and marketing the grass seed business, uh, uh, flood put me out. I, I was really kind of burned out. I was kind of glad to see that go. We had another little situation about a couple of years later with the, the bison business and the storm business with the meat sales on uh, something where we were under uh, federal meat inspection. And then they changed the rules to a state meat inspection, which uh, really didn't fit with our operation. And uh, I'll be truthfully, the, uh, you know, the livestock end of it uh, was good. The American bison was good, but uh, I was going to have to spend a lot of money on, on a new corral system and stuff. And I said, heck, just let's get out of it. So then the pecans were really starting to kick on and really taking a lot more of our time and stuff. So we just strictly just started doing pecans. As far as uh, the corn and soybeans, the 3,000 acres of that, I really don't have a lot to do with that. So management part of that is not not really I have to do. Um, I'm 65 now. Uh, I've slowed up a little bit. It's come out what I might call almost semi-retired, almost, but not quite. Uh, uh, come to work every day and, and, and this, that, and the other, but, uh, uh, not quite hitting as hard as I did when I was 25. Out there. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting to see how, as your pecans, um, have evolved and have grown into a significant production, um, line on your farm, you've been able to ease off the others. I find that really interesting to see how there's also been you know, as, as the trees have gone through some kind of natural growth and succession, so has your business. That's true. And, and it's all been good. I mean, we've had our good years and our bad years and stuff. And <clears throat> I can remember, uh, you know, back 40 years ago, we're getting everything going and, and, you know, uh, agricultural prices were, were really terrible. Uh, interest rates were extremely high and it was some pretty tough years in there. I mean, uh, uh we kind of knew, uh, you know, uh, well, if we can wait another couple of days, we can get 30 day float on the feed or on the, on the fuel <laughs> on, mm. on stuff on that, you know, on that sort of deal. So we didn't have to pay the interest, that high interest rate on it. So, you know, the, things have changed a lot over the years and stuff. Like I say the, you know, uh, the farm's out of debt, which is uh, really nice uh, and has been for a number of years. And it's like anything I say, once you get out of debt, uh, you know, there seems to be all kinds of, of, of extra money around and profit around a lot better than having to, to pay a lot of, a lot of debt off. And, uh, that's kind of nice. The thing to say is that, that we are out of debt on the farm and, and it makes life a lot easier. Um, how did you manage, um, on a knowledge level to have all these different enterprises? Well, mainly I grew up with it. <laughs> you know, we were in the Buffalo business for 42 years. I, you know, we started Eastern Gamma Grass really in 1980. And, uh, you know, we're in it for 30 years and, you know, uh, my dad was, uh, you know, forward thinker, uh, kind of figured out on, on, on what maybe we could do. I took management of the farm in 78, uh, when I got out of college mm -hmm. and between he and I saw stuff and kind of learned the hard way. Most of that stuff out there was nothing out there. You could really learn. Nobody really knew how to race pecans this far North of Missouri. And as far as uh, varieties and stuff to, to graft to and stuff, and we made plenty of mistakes and you learn by that. And as far as in the Buffalo business, uh, 
livestock business is somewhat a livestock business, but somewhat it's it's a little different too. But mainly is is being a salesman, and I uh, I really want to say is that uh, you know to be successful in life you need to be a salesman, and my my father was a salesman, kind of taught me uh, uh, you know how to maybe to be a salesman also, but uh, uh, some of the most uh, you know the most successful people in the world I feel are salesmen. You know you talk about Bill Gates maybe you know with Microsoft. He, I don't think he had the best operating system, but he was able to sell IBM on his uh, his operating system, and that became Microsoft and uh, kind of ha- how it worked. Uh, and uh, I talk a lot of people is if you're successful, you're a salesman, and that's my opinion. But uh, but but able to talk to people and and to to uh, maybe move your product to sell your product uh, or sell your ideas is is very important. I think to be successful. Um, when you're talking about sales now, I'm I'm still kind of there's still a gap in my understanding of how you manage to to sell retail 300 or mostly retail um, with some shops as you mentioned 300 acres of pecan uh, nuts. I mean that's that's a that's a lot of production, isn't it? It is. You know, well, about 200. You know, and you know we're on a major highway here, and uh, yeah, we have a large sign up on the highway uh, that uh, down here. Uh, do advertising and that sort of thing also but also we have a superior product and if you have a superior product and and you sell it for a reasonable price um you know that that makes a a lot better as far as i'm concerned and uh and and we move a lot of accounts like that but either we completely we shut them completely out where we're just strictly selling the nut meats what we've done a lot of is what we call a, a blown pecan is where we run uh, these pecans through air crackers and then through an air separator, which blows most of the shells out. And then we bag them. Whereas uh, normally there may be five pounds of whole nuts, but time we get done with them, there's only a, <clears throat> three pounds of product there. So we've taken about two pounds of the shell and, and, and stuff out of them. And so it leaves less than a half a pound of shell in the product or, or other stuff. And then people just really end up just sorting them out and do a little hand labor and, and sort them out instead of us doing it. Uh, that's mainly how we sell. Like I said, we sell a lot to, to other peddlers that people sell. You know, people come in, buy, you know, two or 300 bags or whatever of the product, and then they go and sell them, you know, 40, 50, 100 miles away. Uh, we also do quite a bit of, like, bulk food stores and, and some grocery stores that uh, they'll come in and take, you know, two or, you know, 1,000, 2,000 bags at a time. and. Uh, so, you know, we move a lot of product that way. So, okay. and then, you know, we go ahead and shells quite a bit too. And we sell out of the store here and stuff. Nut meats, we also sell, you know, the blown pecans and stuff. And like I say, we can do that. To, and we sell at a reasonable price. We don't uh, get really expensive and stuff. Uh, uh, but uh, that's how we move the product and make it work. You know, we used to sell sweet corn. We used to raise sweet corn out here. Uh, we had the buffalo meat stuff. The farm store was open 12 months out of the year. Summertime with uh, pecan and equipment, we had uh, with some really good ground and sprayers and stuff and uh, planters and stuff. We raised sweet corn and we'd raise, uh, you know, 10 hectares of sweet corn a year. And, but we'd only have it like three different days a year. And people would maybe, you know, sell sweet corn alongside the road and they may sell a pickup load, which would maybe be a couple thousand ears. Well, you know, for me, a sweet corn day sale is 40,000 years of sweet corn. Um, mm. People are selling it uh, maybe uh, $3 a dozen. 
I was selling it for $2 a dozen. People come in and buy one or two dozen from those people. They come in and buy 20 or 30 or 40 dozen from me, you know, to put up and free. So, you know, we made it on volume and uh, that sort of thing. And that worked out real well. Got people to the store. We also get peaches shipped in from southern part of the state and we'd sell peaches and we had our buffalo and pecans and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, just to get people out and, and, and we kind of make it on volume a lot better than sometimes in just a very high price specialty market, which you're dealing with a very few people. So it worked out better for us on how to market our pecans and other products and stuff we sold here on the farm. Matter of fact, I even, yeah, like one other thing I'll tell you real quick is that, you know, pumpkins, uh, you know, we used to raise pumpkins and stuff and I tried to sell pumpkins and you could always sell a few pumpkins, but if you've ever raised pumpkins, either it's a pumpkin year, or it's not a pumpkin year. Either you raise a lot of pumpkins or you don't raise hardly any at all. And when everybody, when it's a pumpkin on year, everybody has pumpkins and you can't hardly sell them. So we advertise, give pumpkins away. Everybody come to the farm, got a free pumpkin. I made more giving a pumpkin away than I ever could have made by selling it because people come to the store and they get a free pumpkin and they'd buy some buffalo <laughs> meat and some pecans and some jams and jellies and mixed nuts and that sort of stuff. So, you know, just, a you know, draw stuff. Uh, pumpkin's pretty cheap to raise. And like I say, it's a, uh, we made more money giving pumpkins away than we ever could by selling them. So. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, clearly not such a little thing, apparently. But uh, you're, you're bringing up a lot of things I'd like to, to delve into. Um, and um, the first one is, how does the quality of your pecans um, differ from, from others on the market? You said you sell a higher quality product. In what way? Is it in, is it in the processing, in the way it's presented, as you mentioned? Or is it in the actual quality of the nut? Uh, a little bit of all. Um, in our part of the country over here, there are um, normally about 20 miles west of me, uh, there's some, uh, quite a bit of uh, native pecan trees that uh, the squirrels and nature planted and stuff, and they are not grafted. They tend to be quite a bit smaller. They have a great flavor and stuff, but they're fairly small and they're, they're hard to pick out and stuff. Um, all our trees are grafted, so uh, uh, we uh, we know what each tree is going to produce or each rose because each rose the uh, uh, the same variety. And there's a lot of difference there because we can go in and when we harvest, we harvest by variety. Today we're gonna, you know, we're gonna harvest this variety, and when we get done with it, then we'll start on a different variety. But we keep all those separate. So when we go to process and clean, we can, you know, we can set all our machines up for that size nut because some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller, some of them have real thin outside shells, some of them have real thick outside shells. So all that's taken advantage. And when you set a machine to, to take that, to crack that shell, if you have the, your machine set to crack a pecan has a thick shell when it gets a pecan in that has a thin shell it tends to smash it to pieces and vice versa when you have the machine set to set to uh, maybe crack what i want to say a, a real thin shell and you put a hard shell in there the machine won't crack it so that way we can get a, a good process on our pecans where most all the pecans are cracked and and they shell out well uh, we've invested in a lot of equipment of expensive air crackers and stuff where most everybody else is still kind of going along with the old style crackers um, these new crackers really don't tend to work real well with the really small thick shell natives. So that sort of thing. And, and, and the grafted varieties are tend to be quite a bit larger and they look a lot nicer. They have the same flavor and stuff. So that, uh, like I say, blowing the other shells and stuff out, uh, the normal procedure in this part of the country is to put five pounds in a paper bag and staple it shut. Well, people can't see what they're buying. Uh, in mine, they're in a, 
plastic bag, but it, you know, that, uh, can, they can see pretty well the whole product in the bag. It does have our, our labels and names and stuff all over and that sort of thing. But you can also see what you exactly what you're buying. So, and people like that, you know, they like to see what they're going to be buying. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, selling, uh, like your apples and put them in a brown bag and staple it shut. It's a lot better to set them on the shelf so people can actually see what they're getting, uh, through the packaging or however. So that that's that's made a lot of difference in 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 our part of marketing sort of situation is also with being so far north that people come in instead if they're going on to the south to get pecans we're kind of the first ones on the market on coming from the north and also from the east so we catch a lot more people that way and like i say you know we've people know our pecans now they know they're going to get a quality pecan uh you know that's been kept it's not rancid it's fresh uh you know, uh, cracked right. It's not going to mold on them, that sort of thing. Uh, dry to the, you know, to the perfection it needs to be. And I guess that all comes with, with work. Uh, you know, I, pecan season and I love it because, uh, I always have to taste test and quality check the pecans. And so I get to eat a lot of pecans during the fall. It seems like so, uh, which is not all bad either. So works out well. And maybe that's just to check the moisture and stuff on them. So whatever. Mm. And uh, there's something else that you're you're bringing up. It's um, how um, you're managing also to produce a, a certain volume, which is clearly and it's the same thing for the for what you were t- uh, talking about the um, about the corn, uh, the sweet corn. Um, you know, you somehow you've got to have the mechanization as well, and that's clearly something that you're investing in, if I understand correctly, um, in order to. Um, be able to sell at that quality, but also at that scale, right? To be able to have a reasonable price or even undercut the price. Is that is that correct? Is that something that you're focused on as well? That's correct. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, raising it, uh, pecans is, is sort of a, a, a thing of scale. And I see this so much with a lot of people in the pecan business. And man, you know, they go out and they're going to plant 10 acres of, of pecan orchards and which Sounds like an awful lot, and it is, and it's kind of a hobby for them, and they get them started, but all of a sudden, it takes, it's more than a hobby, and it's more than you can do by hand, as far as, you know, harvesting and or whatever, or, you know, uh, handling the disease problems and insect problems with sprayers and stuff. You know, you need a certain size orchard to afford to have the equipment to take care of it. If not, you've got a tremendous amount of hand labor, and uh, we don't have that labor available in this part of the country to do that sort of thing very well. And I'll be true if your machines can harvest pecans a lot better than people can by picking up. Uh, that harvester out there, that pecan machine harvester, picks up 98%, 99% of the pecans. And probably some of the best people they can pick up by hand and maybe get 60 or 70% of them. So, you know, they're leaving a lot on the ground out there they just, you know, just can't find. So. It works better for us to use, uh, you know, be big enough that we can afford the, the harvesters, we can afford the cleaners, we can afford the crackers, uh, you know, and the processing equipment, storage equipment stuff, you know. I've got a large freezer here that we can store, you know, like 80,000 pounds of whole nuts in. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, in the pecan business, we, uh, you know, store, everybody wants pecans starting the 1st of October. And we have to supply that market. The problem with it is pecans don't start falling until about the 1st of November. So we have a large freezer and stuff. And, you know, by this time of year, they would already be, they're already in in there. And, and uh, 
and freeze them, take them right on down to zero and keep them there all rest of winter, spring, summer. And then in the, maybe in September, we start pulling them out, uh, start processing them. Uh, by the first October, then we're able to, to fill a lot of our custom orders, our grocery store orders, our bulk food store orders, that sort of stuff, and kind of get them taken up on that sort of pecan. Then <clears throat> run those through till October. Then we get busy in November, start harvesting. That's normally about the time that we, uh, you know, we're pretty well emptied of the year before pecans, and then we're able to start on 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 that year's production and start to you know processing those and moving those through the market. That's a busy time of the year. You know, October and November are really super busy for us because that's harvest season. We're processing and also and everything. So we do hire a little extra help to to help on that, maybe to run harvesters or to work back here mm. where we're processing and hire a couple extra hands, uh, people, part-timers. So it works out, works out well for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And so when you say that you're too big to be a small farmer and too small to be a big farmer, that doesn't apply to your. Um, that doesn't apply to the pecan orchard of three hundred acres. That applies to the whole farm, or that farm mainly to the to the row crop, the corn and soybeans part of it. Um, that's what that means, you know. And and you know, yeah. I mean, uh, I've got a cleaning plan here on the farm that's really it's pretty well made for a six hundred acre orchard. Um, I've got three hundred acres. Okay. Um, you know, I'm a little oversized on that, but you know, I. I that's the smallest they built. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's huge. I just, so, you know, I just mean, find it difficult to imagine. You know, yeah. And there's a separate building out there that's got all that equipment in, you know, that, that we bring them in out of the fields and stuff with, with uh, you know, dump trailers and stuff and empty those. And from there they go up there and, they, you know, it takes uh, any of the, the holes and stuff and takes those out. It takes any you know, sticks out, any dirt clods and stuff out, any stick tights out. Uh, then they run through an aspirator that sucks anything that pecan maybe doesn't have not filled well, takes those out. And then from there they go through a, you know, an I-Core sorter sort of thing that, you know, takes a picture of every nut that comes through there. And, you know, it'll do about 5,000 pounds of nuts an hour. So, you know, mm. at 70 nuts to the pound, you can, you know, 350,000 nuts an hour going through there is taking a picture of every one of them decides whether it's a, uh, right color, the right texture and the right size. And it, a little shot of air blows that out. And then they come down on a, on another table and stuff, a, a belt and stuff. And a couple people there in case it meets something out because those harvesters pick everything up out there. That's the same size and weight as a pecan, whether it be a, you know, a rock or, a, you know, a dirt clod or a piece of stick or, a, you know, maybe a shotgun hull or, 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 you know, a bone of some kind, who knows whatever's out there. So. Mm -hmm. All that has to be sorted out. So, you know, and then they're put into thousand pound bulk bins that we can move around with a forklift and dump and stack and store and stuff. So that's how we handle those sort of things. So it works out well for us. And like I say, we're a little maybe over mechanized, but labor is expensive in this part of the country and it's hard to find. And so the more we can do by, by machine, the lot better off we are. So you've got room to expand your orchard in terms of, you know, the fixed costs would would be able to to hold some more uh, some more production, right? Sure. You could increase the size of your orchard if you if you wanted to. Correct, you know, and I've thought about that for the past three or four years, and I thought, well, you know, uh, you know, I could, I could, you know, I, I got forty acres down there, man. That that would really raise some really nice pecans, and it's a good place down there. I ought to do that. 
I think, you know, I'm 65 years old and it's going to take 15 years to get them in production and, you know, really full production. You know, I'm going to be 85 years old and do I really want to, you know, you know, do that till then? I guess maybe I might, but I haven't pulled a trigger. I mean, the last orchard we planted was about eight years ago. So, uh, I'm you know, about another 18 acres over there, but kind of in a nice spot. But, you know, as far as that, I'm, I'm pretty well maxed out, I think, as far as, you know, orchards I'd plant. Um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife, some decisions yeah, my wife to be made said, there, are you really going to think about planting i said yeah but no nah, i probably won't you know of course there's always an old saying you know only old men plant trees and you know i used to laugh about that and because uh, my dad wanted to plant trees all the time and stuff and he was an old man because uh i came along fairly late in life and 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 that was uh, in his life and uh, he, he, you know, wanted to plant a pecan orchards and stuff. So that was fine. The thing about it is, is, you know, those saying old men plant trees, that's not necessarily true. Cause I planted an awful lot of tree when I was a kid, but I had an old man out there making me plant them. So and I'm kind of <laughs> glad he did. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a nice business to have. Mm, yeah. Cause when I go to bed at night, you know, that tree is right there. And when I get up in the morning, it's exactly where it was the night before. You know, and I couldn't say the same thing with a beef cow. Yeah. You know, she may be, she... I've never I never thought about it in that way when I was planting trees. <laughs> I don't have to build a fence around them to keep them in. <laughs> when we were in Greece, we had to build a fence to keep other things out. So we still had to build a fence, even that. if the trees weren't going to run away. Yeah. Um, but we were farming on, uh, it was 12 acres in this case. So another kind of scale. Yeah. Um, so probably our listeners right now are, are thinking to themselves, when are you going to start talking about agroforestry? And um, so I think it's, I'd love to know a bit about, um, you know, t tell us a bit about the first or the why you started planting grains um, in between uh, your row of trees. How did that decision go about? Why did you decide to start doing this? Tell us a bit about the, the, the history behind, uh, behind that part of your system. Okay, well, 1981, we planted the, uh, the 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 larger orchard over there, about 200 acres in it, 180, and it was in the bottom of that, and that was a a wheat field, and it was all planted in wheat, and then in the late winter, early spring, we went down there and set 12,000 flags on that. They were in 40 foot rows, about 15, 18 foot step down the road. We the, the rows were straight as an arrow. We set them off with a, with a level. Uh, it took about 10 days to do that. And to, to do, still this day, it was called the flag farm because it was just a massive flag farm. And they were white flags on that pretty green wheat down there. And so we put them there. Uh, we went ahead and sprayed right down the row there to kill the wheat out and then planted nuts in there. And that was the kind of the start of our agroforestry. We went ahead and combine the wheat uh that summer off that uh, the next year i think we planted corn or soybeans and and rotated a, a wheat corn soybean crop through there um we did the wheat uh i had a neighbor that would farm and, and come in and, and farm between the rows now you gotta remember that's back in the in the early 80s mid 80s and early 90s and farming was quite a bit different then uh, our, our equipment was quite a bit smaller. Uh, 
now my renter, you know, has a, has a 65 foot field cultivator, you know, and his planters are, are, are 50, 80, 50, 60 feet wide. So, you know, but back then, you know, everybody was still planting with four and six row planters. So we weren't very wide and we could get in there and plant and, and worked real well. And, you know, we didn't call it agroforestry back then. We just called it farming between the pecan trees. Then they came up with this fancy name called agroforestry and which was fine. But the, the whole idea was that we were, had that all that room between the trees that between the rows at 40 feet that we weren't using there was probably 30 feet there that wasn't being used so we cropped that and we cropped that you know in corn bean soybean for probably about 16 or 17 years if i remember right and then wow. at least for 15 and then as then we kept getting slow you know we we were planting 12 rows and then we 10 rows and then eight rows and then we finally got down to six rows and by the tr- time the trees get to a certain size the root system starts coming out and really starts taking away from the crop out there. So it got where it wasn't feasible to farm anymore as far as row crop. So we seeded it down to grass and in, in our part of the country, our orchards are all seeded down to grass. And so we started cutting hay between it and, and that worked out well. We put up a quite a bit of what we call baleage, which is where we go in there and mow the hay and the grass in the morning and let it lay for two or three hours and rake it and bale it into a small bale and then wrap it where it turns into to, to haylage or, or silage sort of stuff. And that worked out real well because of that, because the trees were getting big enough, it was starting to shade some. Uh, we could still get our hay put up without any problem, you know, still have enough sunlight to get it dry as dry hay, or we could go with the silage hay. With us being in the American bison business or the buffalo business, you know, we had, uh, we could haul that and use that to feed our livestock and stuff. And, you know, when you got uh, three or 400 head of buffalo on the farm, it takes quite a bit of hay in the wintertime and stuff. And also we were in the cattle business. We, uh, you know, buying cattle and stuff. And uh, we were buying what I want to say older cows that maybe mismanaged in the summer. They were pretty thin come this time of year, fall, you know, December, January, we'd buy them, have order buyers out and buy them and buy them for, you know, a 750 pound cow for, you know, $250 and, and, uh, you know, 30 cents a pound, whatever. We'd bring her home, feed her this excellent hay of baleage or, or grass hay and start putting weight on them, you know, then, you know, pasture them clear up to maybe about the middle of June or first of June. And then the hamburger market was going pretty good and we'd, we'd ship them off off to market then. And, and normally we could uh, put about 500 pounds on them, almost double their size and then also double the amount of money we got for them. So that worked out pretty good payment too. So we are utilizing that grass between the trees in that situation. Um, when I got out of the uh, the buffalo business and the livestock business, it was kind of nice. Uh, as far as moving hay, I, I mean, I did sell the hay. I had a, a friend that needed hay a lot. He would come in and mow the orchard early in the spring or early part of the summer. As soon as he could get in there, mow the hay off of it. And then he would pay me for the amount of fertilizer, which was fairly easy to figure out how many tons of hay he took off. And he'd pay me to put the extra fertilizer back down on the orchard. And that way it saved us a mowing of the orchard, one mowing, and then also keeping that dead grass and stuff around. Uh, that situation's okay. pretty well dropped now. So we'll just, just go in and keep mowing the orchard, the, the bigger orchard over there, and just keep putting the uh, grass clippings right back down to, to, to build up the, the organic matter of the soil and, and probably help the pecans a little better. On my younger orchards, we're still mowing hay between them. Um, there's not a lot of money to be made selling hay, but. I have a large barn. We could stack almost a thousand big round bales in. Uh, so you're looking at, uh, you know, 
probably 750 ton of hay I can hold in that barn. And, uh, you know, we just keep filling. I don't have a lot of hay, but we keep filling it up. And uh, about every five years it's full. And then that's about the time we have a drought and hay gets to be expensive. And I sell it then. And, uh, you know, I've built up a, a, a pretty good reputation of having some of the best hay in the country. And that, uh, you know, uh, if you want the very best, you know, you come see Dan. It's going to cost a lot of money, but, you you know, you're going to get some of the best hay in the country. You can feed your horses or you can feed your your very best cows or whatever you want. So that, uh, that's kind of how we work that. And we've built up a nice market of reputation, that sort of thing. And reputation is this, you know, you know, I have one rule, you know, if I wouldn't eat it, I'm not going to sell it. And, mm. you know, uh, if I don't like it, you're not going to like it. And if you're not going to like it, you're going to tell 20 people you don't like it. Uh, if you like it, you're only going to tell one person you like it. So be real careful not to sell anything that's, you know, not up to par or up to snuff. So that's, that's been kind of one of our main, you know, main deals. You know, I have one strict rule on the farm come June 15th. If the hay is not put up, if we've had bad weather, we don't put it up that year. I mean, it just, uh, anytime I bale hay after the 15th of June, the quality goes way down on it. And, and I don't want to sell any bad quality hay. I always want to sell the best. Do you think that uh, the, the trees have something to do with the quality of the hay as well? I'm talking about, you know, the trees being there and maybe having an effect on the organic matter of the soil or the shade also cooling down in the, I don't know, would you, have you perceived something like this? I mean, I really noticed something. I'm not saying it can happen. Um, the only thing about it is, is the tree gets bigger and as it, and if it gets maybe a little later into May, the trees leaf out and it makes it hard to get the hay dry enough to bale. And that's the problem. Yeah. And when we were going with the baleage sort of thing, it, you know, that worked out pretty well. Um, the only problem is it's hard to sell that. You have to use that stuff up. You really, it's really not a saleable product like dry hay is. So it's expensive to haul. It's heavy. It's got a lot of water in it, but it's an excellent feed too. So, um, so you, you weren't doing dry hay, um, in your pecan orchard when it was, when it had roots. I was doing both. If I could put it up dry, I put it up dry. If I couldn't, I'd go ahead and build it up as baleage. Okay. So it depended on the climatic conditions Correct. at the time of drying, Correct. right? Okay. Correct. You know, the, the corn and beans worked out real well. I mean, but like I say, finally it got to a situation that just wasn't working. The problem with it now is, is that, you know, the chemicals that we used for weed control back in the 80s was a, is a lot different than the weed control we use now for soybeans and corn. And, you know, the, pretty well the same, the same chemicals we use for weed control around the pecans was the same thing we're using for corn and soybeans. Well, like I say, now that's not the truth because... Roundup and, and dicamba and all this other kind of stuff is really detrimental to pecans. They're real susceptible to it. So kind of limits you on what you can use as far as spray, unless you want to go back to the, the old time stuff where we're cultivating and all that. And, and mainly that's just not really very easy to do, you know, and have equipment small enough to get in there to do it. You know, right now, you know, the spray rigs and stuff that, you know, take care of weeds and, you know, they're spraying, uh, you know, 80 foot wide booms and kind of hard when you got trees 40 feet apart, you know, you, you can't, uh, you can't spray 80 feet wide. Luckily though, the fertilizer, I have that custom put on now and they do spread 80 feet, but it's dry fertilizer. So it, uh, it slings past the trees and they drive down every other row to fertilize that way. And that's, that's one thing I can work on pretty good. They have got that where they can sling fertilizer and stuff out 80 feet now. So it helps out instead of, instead of just the 40. Um, but like I say, farm has changed a lot. Um, 
you know, on a small organ, a small operation, you know, well, I could race sweet corn or I could race some pumpkins in there and do things a little different or, you know, maybe some other kind of small crops and stuff. But to do it on any kind of scale to have, you know, a, a decent sized pecan orchard, you know, you know, what are you going to do with 200 acres of sweet corn? That's a lot of sweet corn. Yeah. You know, I can't move that much or, you know, or 200 acres of pumpkins or, or, or vice versa. That's the problem I get into. So, um, you know, for me, uh, I need scale to, to, to make it pencil out. Yeah. I and mean, that makes sense then to put the, the row crops in between your pecan orchard and yeah. back in the days when you were doing it yourself, do it yourself. But, um, nowadays the problem is that you've got to get other people to do it and they have machinery that's not adapted. And so that kind of creates, uh, some trouble, right? That's right. That's right. Break. And like I said, the whole, the whole farming thing has changed in the past 40 years. You know, we're yeah. really, as far as I'm certain, is not that conducive to, to you know, to agroforestry row cropping, but you know, per se between the trees and stuff. Yeah, no, I was, was going to just keep going on 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 what you were talking about with uh, the pesticides, and that's one of the questions that I had, and one of the things that in agroforestry we're trying to understand it's the you know the the management um, issues um, and you know co- coordinating different management regimes, different management needs. When you have a row crop, for example, that needs to be weeded somehow, and when you have, for example, uh, a tree crop there um, that suffers from the pesticides, are there any other kind of big management problems that you were facing in the 16 years that w- you were you were into cropping? Uh, I'm talking about, for example, pass, uh, passing with with machinery, compaction, and damage to potential damage to the roots of the trees. Are there any things that you were you were worried about uh, with the interaction of these two crops? Well, I guess the main thing was is that a lot of times if you had crop down there stuff in the early years, when we really needed to be down there working with the trees, there was no way to get down there because, uh, the corn was growing in the fields and, you know, how do you, you know, how do you get equipment down through there without knocking all the corn and stuff down? So that was a kind of the problem too. We found out. And as the trees got bigger, you know, we kept getting a wider space and then we wouldn't plant the in rows so we could go down and take care of our trees because we were needing to spray them for, you know, for, uh, some sort of, you know, like foliar bugs that would, you know, defoliate the trees and stuff, which was not good and that sort of thing. And, and then when they got, uh, you know, in, uh, into, uh, production, you know, we definitely have to drive down through there and, and stuff. And if we had hay uh, in there, you, you know, you kind of knocked all that down. So it was kind of hard to figure around and stuff to, to when we had to spray or fertilize or do other stuff for work or, graph those pecans when we spend a lot of time down on those young trees. So it was a, it was a little different situation on, on, on that, as far as, you know, the width and stuff on those trees as they got older, just a lot of different management. Of course, now, you know, we're, you know, we're in the orchard, uh, uh, mowing it. Uh, uh, we spray a little weed control right around the base of all the trees. Trees are big enough. We really don't need it, but mainly it keeps vines and stuff from wanting to grow up on the trees, poison ivy vines and, and, and Virginia creeper and trumpet vines and stuff. So it kind of keeps holds that stuff down. Uh, being, we keep our orchards really main looked up like a park. Uh, most people don't, uh, they maybe mow it once or twice right before the year right to harvest. That's it. It's easier for us to keep the weeds and stuff and the grass down and search and deal and keeps it up looking. I'm right on a major highway. My orchards are on a major highway and, and, uh, to have the, you know, the orchard looking nice people think that, you know, if your orchard looks successful, they think you're successful and then they want to buy your product. And 
the same way, you know, we, uh, you know, we have a lot of highway right away. We keep it all mowed up looking real nice and everything else. And looks on a farm, you know, it really doesn't, people don't think it pays, but it pays a tremendous amount in the long run. If the farm's neat and picked up and cleaned and, and not a lot of brush growing everywhere and weeds and stuff, you know, people are more interested in buying from somebody I think is successful than somebody that's kind of, uh, you know, place maybe looks a little trashy or something like that. So, yeah. you know, the looks, it's, it's part of these sales the things sales that you were talking yeah. about before. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. one time, you know, we had some, uh, you know, we had a, uh, an Easter freeze and, uh, we did not raise a pecan that year, not one pecan. And we didn't even open the store that year. It was a pretty, pretty sour deal. And, and, uh, uh well, excuse me, we did open, so we had other stuff going, but we didn't raise any pecans of our own stuff. And I said, well, we don't have to harvest any pecans this year, so we don't have to keep the orchard all mowed up. And so we didn't do the last couple of mowings, and it got all, you know, got pretty tall and stuff. And had people coming in the farm to buy, you know, some buffalo meat or some jams and jellies and other nuts and stuff. I said, oh, you're, you're, not in the pecan, you're out of the pecan business now, huh? And I said, well, no, we're still in the pecan business. Well, your orchard's not all mowed up. I thought you all quit, you know, we're out of the pecan business. No, just no pecans. There's no need to, to mow it to pick the harvest of pecans. And after, you know, the fourth or fifth person came in in a week's time, uh, told me that, that thought we were out of the pecan business. The employees came in Monday morning. I said, all right, guys, we took the mowers off. Go back there and hook them on. And, you know, you're going to go down and mow the orchard this week. I said, at least definitely mow the part of it where they can see from the highway. So everybody thinks we're still in the pecan business. <laughs> you know, it costs some money, but. You know, it's part of the stuff you just had to do, you know, to still stay in business. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what do, what did people say when they saw you um, intercropping? Well, I mean, it must have been, it's quite an uncommon, uncommon thing, especially back in the days. Oh, they, what did people think about oh, that? They thought we were crazier than heck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. You, you walk into the, you know, to the restaurant, you know, for maybe breakfast in the morning or something and, there's a community table sitting around there and, you know, eight or 10 people. And all of a sudden you walk in and man, all of a sudden the table just shuts up and stuff. And I had an old gentleman with me and I said, I think they were talking about me. He said, Dan, they talk about you every morning pretty well. But he said, mm-hmm. hey, this way, if they're not talking about you, you're not doing a damn thing. So, you know, let them talk. That's good. You know, if they're not talking about you, you're not doing anything. So, <laughs> that's very, interesting. you know, it was the thing you just do something different. I mean, uh, you know, the same reason you, know, you make a little bit doing what everybody else doing, but you stand to make a lot more doing what everybody else is not. So do something different. Yeah. Do something different. Be a trendsetter. You know, some things haven't worked. You know, we, we tried stuff that hadn't worked and, and, uh, you know, kind of got, you know, we had heart nuts and stuff and they didn't work. Uh, Dad planted a bunch of filberts and uh, they don't work here in this part of the country. Uh, we were in the recent business, which is the European bison. You know, we were, had the largest privately owned herd of weasons in the world one time. And, and that just never did work out. So we got rid of them. Uh, you know, we thought about getting in the deer business, the fattle deer business, raising deer for meat and stuff. And we decided either we had to get real big or get out. So, uh, we got out of that, but you know, I mean, there's a lot of things we've tried that haven't worked and, and but we've tried some things that have worked and, and you just keep working through them. Probably one of the main things I've seen is a lot of people is they try something and they don't see it through, through the end and we found out that if you're going to try something normally it takes about eight years before you really come proficient and, and professional and, and economically successful with it and 
I've seen so many people start stuff in three or four years and they quit, whether they're almost there, but they quit and don't stick through it. And, mm-hmm. you know, agroforestry is the sort of deal. It's a long-term deal. I mean, it's, you know, if you're going to plant it, you need to figure out that you're probably going to be there the rest of your life to mess with it. So, you know, it's not something you're going to start and, you know, yeah. two or three years probably move on. If not, you know, you're not going to be in that business. It's a long-term yeah. deal. Like I say, every morning, you know, I get up, they're still there. They haven't, I haven't had to build a fence around them. <laughs> I wanted to uh, go back a bit to um, to the, the, the intercropping, kind of the details that we were delving into. I had a few questions still about that. Okay. Um, just to understand, um, you stopped intercropping about when the trees started entering production, right? Then you started, then there started to be some logistical issues with, you know, crops underneath and um or or was it more that you had to change crops did you start putting more winter wheat for example during uh, how did it work out at that level well it worked out better for us like i say we went corn and beans for about 15 years you know we the trees really kind of got maybe production about 20 but there are five years there that we were in a hay business between them and we were cutting hay off of them every year and so that was still an agro forestry intercropping deal as far as i'm concerned um yeah yeah after sure. that you know the trees got in production um you know we still cut some hay between them and stuff but you know after we got a livestock business it's better off just to not mess with it and then we could go down there and do you know take care of the orchard you know year round all year long especially any time of the summer you know we didn't have to worry about any other crop there we're strictly you know focusing on the pecan or the nut crop and that's what we were really you know that's where the money was and that's what we're after uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the agroforestry deal worked out good. You know, did we make a lot of money off doing it? No, but it, it, it made enough money to pay for the land costs and the input costs and everything else. So that was real important for those establishment yeah. years, especially in the early sim, because we were getting a lot of row crop off of it. And as we got down, we got narrow and narrow and less and left. And then it got to a situation that really wasn't profitable farm anymore. So when it wasn't probable farming, then we had to go to do some sort of things. So we went to the grass situation and now we're still in the grass too. So, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, anymore now we're just on the orchards and strictly keeping them mowed down and, and then harvest the nuts in the fall. But they're the time we're fertilizing twice a year. We're normally spraying about three times, four times a year, uh, you know, mowing, you know, four times a year, you know. Uh, just uh you know we're in the process of pruning trees in a bigger orchard we'll do that about every 10 years the young orchards the other 100 acres over here you know we prune those every year we're still in the process of grafting some of them uh that sort of thing so you know it's a it's a it's an on and on and long you know there's always something yeah. to do and that's the nice thing about it for sure um j- just um about you just mentioned something now that brings up this question um, you weren't able to to spray the trees then very easily in the early stages when there was a crop there, right? right. I mean, you weren't able to pass. Yeah, so you had, kind of had to compromise there a bit. If the trees needed some some point, they were starting to have fungal infection. They needed some intervention, um, especially when they're young. I mean, they're getting established. They can be quite weak. Yeah. Um, how would you manage? How are you managing that? Well, that you know, instead of the big orchard sprayers we've got now and stuff, we had a you know sprayer on a small tractor, you know, a hand sprayer and you know, and going with some uh, malathion or some seven or whatever. And mainly, you know, walnut caterpillars and, and that sort of thing that was a problem and stuff. They could defoliate those young trees pretty fast. And, and see on top, it took a long time to do it, you know, with that, you know, because uh, 
you know, earlier we were just spraying them around with a, you know, with a small four wheeler or three wheeler and, uh, uh, a small one. Then we went to a smaller tractor and, you know, and to do that, but still it took a lot of time to do that. And then was there when we finally got rid of the row crop part of it, then it was easier. Then we could go with our, you know, purchase our regular orchard sprayers and stuff. And now, you know, a couple of three years ago, I put her to a, a very large orchard sprayer because my trees were getting really big and tall where I needed that because, you know, I don't like to spray. I do the most of spraying. We spray, I spray most of the time at night. And, and you know, when you go at it to go to work at 10 o'clock at night and until five or six in the morning, you know, and then try to do something the next day. And then the next night you got to do it. It kind of makes for a long day and stuff and in between there. And it just really messes your sleep cycle up and stuff. But that's a good time to get those done. I don't like to spray anymore than I have to. It's expensive. But if we don't spray, you know, we'll lose probably 80, 90% of our crop. And mm. I kind of tell people, I said, you know, and if you have one pecan tree in your yard, you know, you probably don't have a lot of fungal disease. You get a lot of air movement around it, you know, um, probably don't get a whole lot of, you know, uh, insect damage to speak of whatever. But it's kind of like, uh, you know, when these, when you, but when you put thousands of these trees together, then it's a magnet for diseases and insects and everything else. And, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, like right now that my main, uh, predator on pecans is or crows and, and, you know, uh, a murder of crows can come in and take, uh, you know, they can take seven, 800,000 pounds of nuts a day off of you. And it, you know, two or $3 a pound that adds up pretty fast over, you know, a few weeks time. So you yeah, know, we're yeah. always, you know, trying to get rid of pests of some kind because everything loves a pecan because they're good eating. So, and these grafted ones are really nice because they got a thinner shell on them and these animals can break them open, get them or insects can get in them a lot easier, you know? So, uh, you know, we have a, a spray program and this works pretty well. We keep up with it so we don't get a, a heavy load of insect and stuff load that we have to take care of. And, you know, people don't want to, you know, buy a pecan and look in there and it's got a worm in there, you know, just, you know, that's just not good. Yeah. It's not, good. not good for sales. No. Um, what about um, the fertility? Because at some point you're also fertilizing the row crops. Row crops may have um, different needs, probably have different needs to the pecans. Um, and so when you were fertilizing um, at the beginning, um, at these early stages, um, what did you see some kind of, were there some kind of decisions that needed to be made, some compromises in terms of either you go for the row crop health uh, or you go for the tree health? How did you manage that? Normally when we were fertilizing for row crops, um, they were, the pecan trees were also benefiting from that. So that, you know, and, and being a young tree, you know, I mean, uh, we were close enough to, to be getting enough, you know, the, the fertility wasn't that important that, you know, that precise that, you know, cause we're not just growing a tree and, and it was getting plenty of fertilizer from off the, you know, especially corn, cause you put a lot of nitrogen down on corn. And that was, you know, it was getting in the root system of the young trees. Now, I'm not saying the very young trees, when they were real young, we went and fertilized them by hand, fertilized each one by hand because they weren't big enough to go out to get that. But as they got larger and stuff, uh, the row crop fertilizer pretty well took care of the pecan fertilization, tree fertilization. We went to grass, of course, you know, we went and started fertilizing the orchard and you know, the whole deal. And, of course, the, rat, the roots were pretty well going pretty well all the way across the rows. So uh, we're fertilizing the whole the whole orchard out there, plus the, the hay crop we were doing, which was taking care of that. Uh, 
now we're, you know, where we're not, you know, we're strictly targeting the trees and stuff. Matter of fact, uh, they, uh, they did soil samples on all the orchards here this past week. Should be getting results back here in a week or so. And we'd like to do that about once every, oh, 10 years or so. It's five, 10 years, depending on what we're at. Just kind of seeing where we are on our fertility of our soil and what trees might need to take and stuff. Um, so, uh, Okay, that's. Uh, it would have been good to yeah. interview you in a week's time yeah. to have the results, but I guess we'll just have to yeah. do another short five minute, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> five minute episode on the results. Yeah, so you know, that, you know we'll do it. You know, here probably next year we'll do a leaf sample, you know, and send that okay. stuff off and do that. Um, you know, yeah, we're you know always because fertility fertilizer is expensive. You know, lime's expensive and stuff, and keep everything up and then keep the pecan trees going to the max. You know, it, it's best to kind of keep seeing every once in a while where we're at and stuff. So makes sense. Works out well for us. And you know, one of the big things in agroforestry is is worry about competition um between the row crop, um, including the hay here as well. And considering this this is obviously a part of an, an agroforestry practice, um and and the pecans. Um so um did you did you see any big problems in terms of water competition? I know that we can sometimes find observations where um, you know the the the, the uh, crops that are close to the trees are performing less well, or sometimes more well if the trees has reduced stress um, because you know there's been some shading in hot summers and etc. In your 16 years or more um, um, of experience with intercropping, have you noticed in terms of light? and shade and water any any things that you maybe like to share with us you bet main thing is you know we get a dry season stuff you can you can see exactly where the roots go and you, you know you can see the perfect circle around the trees that the roots have taken all the moisture out you know and the grass is dead or not dead but brown mm-hmm. and stuff and really showed drought and we saw the same thing in 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 corn and soybean production around each one of the trees especially after they got about 10 12 years old the root system were starting to move out quite a ways and stuff and you know, definitely a reduction in yield on corn and soybeans. Uh, and that's what kind of after that, you know, after about 15 years, it, it really, the trees were taking so much from the crop, it wasn't really, you know, profitable to keep farming between them because the trees were yeah. just taking too much moisture away from them. And I'm sure shading was somewhat of a problem too, because, you know, when you got, you know, crops growing right next to trees. And, and mainly, I think it's mainly because the roots are fighting for moisture and nutrients and also some shade too. But like I say, after about 15 years, it pretty well decided that we were not going to be in the row crop business anymore. We were going to have to go to a hay business or something like that. So it worked out better. If you were planting sowing corn, how are you managing the, the interline and the soil in the winter? Were you leaving it bare or were you leaving it tilled up? Were you planting cover crops? How are you managing that? Uh, normally with corn stalks or something like that, we'd come in in the fall and maybe uh, a light disc just to knock the stalks down, uh, you know, to give a ground cover and also, you know, where those uh, corn roots and, and, and corn stalks would maybe tend to start rotting some. Come in in the spring, you know, we did a lot of no-till, uh, you know, back then. Uh, worked out pretty well. Uh, um, you know, but mainly, mainly with probably was, was more conventional tillage because, you know, you really can't spray a lot of roundup down there, uh, on a, on a big situation. So 
uh, no-till, you know, probably was was not, if I remember right, was not a big deal. And it wasn't that big of a deal back then when we were doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Like I say, cover crops, uh, you know, we'd go beans and then get the beans off. We had time, we'd go ahead and plant a crop of wheat in there. So, yeah, the wheat was a cover crop for the winter. Uh, but uh, mainly it was just pretty well mainly farming practices. Uh, it was in a situation in the bottom ground, so we weren't on hill ground where we had to worry about erosion and that sort of thing. So uh, we were pretty open on what we could do. We never tried to raise, you know, corn after corn, put corn in. We could go beans for a couple, three years, maybe a crop of wheat, then come back in with corn. Uh, corn seemed to, to uh, early years worked out pretty well, but as we got longer, the trees tend to really, you know, stunt the corn anywhere next to a tree. So, uh, and corn was fairly expensive to put in also. So, did you notice a difference between the performance in the later stages when the trees had already established, you know, a strong canopy and a root system, etc.? Did you notice that the wheat was performing differently from the corn and the soy? Um, you know, wheat was not, uh, you know, didn't didn't seem to really make a lot of difference on the wheat. Um, and, yeah, that's, that, that would was, be expected. Yeah, right? the wheat pretty well do, you know, and, and like I say, a lot of it's growing gets done before the trees get leafed out and. And and we did real well. The only problem is that the wheat was never a very profitable. You know, it wasn't a lot of profit in wheat. You know, some years there are, but a lot of years it's mainly just kind of a break-even deal. So, uh, you know, we raised some wheat to break stuff up or we could get it in, and then maybe we could double crop some beans in there. But, you know, uh, a lot of times it was trying to get the, the crop out in time to get the wheat planted in the fall to, to do that because uh, my renter, that was kind of the deal. He was kind of a little different and hard to get in there and, and kind of the last thing he farmed. Cause you know, I mean, you're running theoretically over, you know, 200 acres or, and with, you're only farming about 140 of it. So there's a difference between the roads and stuff. So it's a little different out there as far as, you know, you're still running up and down the roads, but you're not farming the whole thing, but you're still, you're still running up over it. So, we nice you know and it costs more to, to farm that way it costs more because of your fuel and planting and all that kind of stuff so it uh, was not quite as profitable still a nice way to make a you know some extra money and help pay to establish the pecan trees and paid the land payments and stuff off on that ground but as far as putting a lot of money in our pockets it really never did but like i said it didn't cost us money and that was the main thing because the um the management or the the cultivation of the wheat and of the soy and corn that also helped with you know managing uh, the tree crops right it helped with you know keeping the area clean uh, managing for competition and etc right it was there was an overlap in management costs right well it's true you know i say you know we have land cost every you know so much a year for taxes and for you know we were still paying to farm off and stuff so we had loans on that ground so the the corn and soybeans and wheat they were helping they were paying the taxes they were paying you know the expenses of putting the crop in and harvesting it and it was also paying the land cost off and sometimes put a little money in our extra money in our pocket board sometimes it was a break even and maybe a time or two it was maybe a loss but not too bad <clears throat> but what it did it, it it got us land use using that land where we're getting the pecan trees in production and as far as I'm concerned yeah. now, the pecan trees are the main crop, and the main production, and, and, and to go after that because, you know, when I can raise a 1,000 pounds of nuts the acre off there and me 
you know, wholesale price out of, you know, after I get that theoretically, I'm getting $2 a pound for my production. And this year, you know, if I sold them to a shelter, I'd probably get 90 cents or 80 or 90 cents a pound. So I'm making way more than twice as much what I normally would sell into a shelter or something like that. So it, it it's very, for me now, just to, to say, yeah, I'm in agroforestry. That orchard over there is what I almost consider is a matured, you know, that 180 acres, 200 acres is a matured agroforestry. The other 100 I have are young trees and stuff. We're cutting hay off of those instead of farming. But I'm being able to sell the hay and storing it and selling it when I can finally make a decent, decent profit on it. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, those still orchards are still under the agroforestry sort of deal, you know, because we're taking a double crop off. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these orchards this year, next year, we'll be taking some nuts off of them. So we'll be getting double duty out of them. But I see in probably another 10 years or so, those orchards will not be, you know, we'll probably stop haying them and we'll just strictly be keeping them mowed and, those trees will be in full production and, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll be rocking and rolling with those things. So, um, and those are all different, you know, those are different to crafted to different varieties, which are a lot better and a lot more, oh, uh, a lot better nut than what we, we grafted with, you know, 30 years ago. So, right. You, you obviously have a lot of, uh, constraints as well uh, with your type of crop the pecan because for example the pecans they drop on the floor and you harvest them from the floor you can't get animals involved you can't put animals around um, that are going to be um, you know spreading their manure around the trees and that then going to get mixed up with the nuts right that's a challenge for you that's true and, and for us you know a lot of people go ahead and you know pasture some of their native orchards and stuff and and that's fine but you know in my situation down at bottom uh, it's wet you know the livestock and pock the soil and you know footprint in the mud and you know a nut falls in there i can't pick it up out of there so i lose a lot of that uh, i can't fight the manure because you know the, there's enough probably manure down there anyway from the deer and the coyotes and the coons and the, and the raccoons and the skunks and possums and all the birds flying around and stuff anyway we go ahead and sanitize these pecans and stuff when, when we process them but any more than that uh, you know i don't want livestock manure in there plus fencing and stuff Probably to have that 200 acres in there under there, I'd probably have to cross fence it and stuff. And when I'm spraying at night, I don't want to get out of that tractor and open 25 gates, you know, all night long, (laughs) you know, and down through there, you know, especially on young trees, the livestock could be hard on them. They, they, they love eating on the leaves and limbs and stuff and, uh, and rubbing on the trees and that sort of thing. So. You know, really, it'd have to be a mature orchard before I could even pasture it anyway. That'd have to fence all the rows of the trees off. And then, you know, you get a situation where you're, you know, just fenced everywhere. And, and you know, it, no, it's it's better off just to, to run row crop or cut hay than it is to, to put livestock in there, uh, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. You know, I don't know a whole lot of people, especially on young orchards, that are that are running any livestock in there at all. If they are, it's a really small orchard. and and they afford to do that, but on a large scale, it would be pretty tough to do. Uh, and like I say, and, and to get the livestock to evenly graze it, unless you, you know, you cross fence it and, and, and make it into paddock sort of deals where you could rotate your animals every two or three days and stuff through there. Uh, easier and cheaper for me just to keep it mowed or, you know, bail for hay off of it or whatever than it is to try and run livestock. You know, I get sheep. You know, but in our part of the country, we're too damp and sheep tend to to die. <laughs> you just don't raise sheep country, you know, between the coyotes and the dogs and the 
in the wet weather. Uh, yeah. You know, this is just not sheep country, so it doesn't work very well. Okay. Um, one of the, the the other aspects that I think would, would be good to to just get into a bit is you know the management of the of the row um, of the Pecan uh, row during the early uh, early stages of establishment. Um, I mean, during the stages at which you in which you did agroforestry, how did you manage that row? Were you using kind of because I, I imagine the row was quite thin; it was difficult to get into, and you're working at such scale that you've got to mechanize this. How how did you kind of you know get rid of the weeds on the row, um, do the minimum passage of getting you know to the trees when needed? How did you do that? Um, well, we'd come in there, you know, when we first planted stuff, we'd come in and spray that row over the top of the trees because the trees weren't you know we planted the nuts and you plant a nut if you get a a tree that grows six eight inches the first year, you know above ground growth. Of course, he's probably got five foot of below ground growth and. Probably ninety five percent of its growth is below ground, and five percent is above ground. Uh, for for about f- three years or so, we went right over the top of those trees. Early, you know, you know, with some herbicide that that uh, kept the weeds down and stuff. Uh, then we come along in the late summer again and probably respray with some other stuff to keep the weeds down. You know, weed control was probably one of the most important things on young pecan or establishment. You know, if you control the weeds, you get the graft. The growth is about two or three times as much growth as you do unless you have if you have a lot of weed pressure on it so it was really important to keep those down then when they got to be about four years old it was tall enough we couldn't spray over the top of them anymore so we would go around uh you know in the early spring and spray around each tree uh with a you know with a tractor and a hand sprayer and a lot of times we'd you know do two rows at once and just walk down through there and just just you know hand spray around and dry the tractor with a pump and everything else, but with two hoses on them and do two rows at once. It was a three-man job. And but uh, that was before you implemented the crop. Yeah, yeah, before the crops were planted, stuff we do that, and and that would take yeah. care of the weed control for that. And then, like I say, but then we'd start grafting, and you know, so we had to get it shortened up enough where we could get our four weeders and stuff down. So, you know, the the row width then was probably you know a good ten, twelve feet wide. So we were taking up twelve feet of a of a forty. 40 foot so we're down to 28 foot of row crop in there and you know we did that 28 foot of row crop for quite a while but then you know the trees started getting bigger and you know after about 10 years we were down to probably you know 24 foot and then at the end of 15 years we were down to 20 foot just farming 20 foot of the 40 just half the ground and not counting the end rows and then after that it was just going to have to go down and you know you just couldn't get any equipment any smaller than that that would work and so, you know, it was a situation where we got down about 20 feet. Then we had to, to switch to grass or to hay. But, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff in between their young, you know, tying grafts up and, and pruning grafts and pruning trees because young trees need a lot of pruning uh, to keep them growing straight, and especially when you graft mature wood onto them because then they start wanting to grow every which way. And we yeah. always trying to prune for a central leader to, to keep the tree growing straight. So there was quite a bit of quite a bit of labor and stuff on that sort of deal back then. But we had we had to have room to get down through there with the still there the crops growing. For sure. And then uh well again during the pruning, you know, you had room to pass, you had room to 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 pass with the with the with the vehicle, I imagine. And it was the winter anyways, right? So in the winter you didn't have a crop there most times because you were planting corn and, and soy and so there was easy passage, easy intervention. Is yeah. that correct? <clears throat> 
some of it, you know, in the, in the pruning stuff, yeah, we didn't have the crop in there. But in the summertime of grafting and stuff, the crop's starting to grow. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be truthful with you. As we went later, we, we didn't raise any corn because you're going to be down the orchard all day working. And, you know, and you're in that corn right next to that corn. You don't get much of a breeze blowing through there, and it get pretty dang hot here in the summertime. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The trees aren't giving any shade, and you're not getting any breeze from that corn because the corn's standing there. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it tend to get a little hot down there. So, you know, soybeans worked a lot better as far as if you were going to spend as much time in the orchard back then taking care of those young trees when you had row crops growing in there. Okay, nice. Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to... Um go too much deeper into into some of these interactions we've covered so much already uh, it's been fascinating uh, but one of the last questions that i had is you know in just looking at the agroforestry so zooming into those systems um, that you had uh, implemented for so long and that you're still implementing in your younger orchards um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you did um and you know if you were to redo it or when you did redo it with the younger orchards what did you change what did you learn that you could share with with um people listeners that are that are looking to implement similar systems probably the main thing you know we've done since we planted the big orchard in is we've is what i say on it we checked our fields where you know we're 40 foot this way you know and the trees are 40 feet apart and every way you look they're in line and stuff that is really important and one of the probably most important things there is you know it's not that hard to do it's fairly easy to do once you figure out how to do it and uh, you know it's to check them and the reason for that if you're going to be farming is when you farm in the same direction the same field the same spot for 15 years in a row you really mess the drainage up on those farms especially in the bottoms where drainage is so important to get the surface water away from those trees kind of mess that up and it's really kind of hard to straighten up after that if we were had if we had checked that field we could have farmed east and west this time and north, south the next time and stuff and, and done it. And then we would have, you know, saved our, 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 our land use drainage and stuff and been a lot better. So that's one thing I would mainly say, you know, number two thing, we were probably taking the care, a little better care of our trees when we were younger than what we thought. Back then we were busy with grass seed. We were busy with buffalo and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the pecan trees kind of took a side set to that. If any more, I would have probably done a lot more because, you know, this, these pecans are, uh, you know, once you have them planted and grafted and, and taken care of them, you know, they're, they're pretty nice profit potential out there. Um, you know, I, I wish we would have grafted different varieties, but back then we didn't know what varieties to graft to. And some of the varieties we put on just didn't work out. So we're in a process of taking those trees out and, and regrafting those sort of things. Um, probably the thing, main thing is, is not planting them any sooner. I mean, the, uh, you know, the sooner you plant them, the, you know, the better off you are. And, uh, people say, well, I'll do it next year. Well, no, you should have done it the year before. And yeah, that's probably the main thing is if you're thinking about it, just go ahead and do it. Uh, as far as orchard layouts stuff, they've got some different orchard layouts and stuff where they put them on 60 foot centers, which makes it a lot easier farming and stuff between them. Um, so, you know, I, I might look at a little different situation on that. Probably put the pecan trees on the very best ground that I have. You know, some ground's better for pecans than others. And I wish I'd been a little, so I've got some pecans on some ground that's probably not the best suited for pecan trees. But, uh, you know, that uh, that's probably some of the other other things I would have done a little different. Um, that's about it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, as far as, uh, as any other thing, 
Uh, I don't know. Pretty well about said it all on that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's already a lot involved. Yeah. Um, the main thing is do it in scale. And and that's, some, you know, I mean, you know, I've got 300 acres. i got 200 acres in production. And, and, you know, I could probably get by with 100 acres and still be profitable. But, boy, I couldn't do any less than 100 acres. And, really, I really need 200 to, to really afford the big equipment and the harvesters and the cleaners and all that kind of stuff. And then also have enough production to sell to make it profitable here to keep the store and stuff open. And, uh, you know, you know, everybody says, well, I can have just a little orchard or I can have a little thing and sell a few pecans off. Well, you can, but you're really not going to make any money off doing that stuff. And you're going to do a lot of hand labor and stuff. And, you know, I know some guys that are pretty handy and they make some of their own equipment stuff, but it's better off to go ahead and buy equipment. I found that, from companies that make equipment to do what you need to do. And uh, you might be able to save a little money, but I think on the long haul, you know, bought equipment is, is a little better than a lot of homemade stuff. Seems to do a better job. So Nice. Nice. Very interesting. Would you, if you were to start again now, plant another 200, 300 acres of, with thousands and thousands of white flags, of um of pecan would you intercrop with corn and soy again uh probably not i had to think long and hard on that um like i say the the herbicides and stuff to use and the, the weed pressure we have now on 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 corn and soybeans <sighs> You know, if I had to, to to make the living, I probably would. But if I didn't have to to make a living off of it, I definitely wouldn't. Okay. Would you use other crops? Would you replace corn and soy by, for example, like you're doing now, uh, just... Uh... I'd use grass and then, then market that grass through some sort of an animal. Okay. That's what... Very interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I had to think long and hard on that, Dimitri, because... Uh, yeah, I could farm, you know, I could go ahead and farm small and, you know, I'd have to do the farming myself and, you know, but, you know, to, okay, I'm going to have to have my own sprayer and that's just to, to farm 200 acres, which theoretically is only going to be 150 acres, you know, even, you know, a planter, a small planter, a six row planter or eight row planter, I'm going to have to have, you know, which is going to cost. $80,000, you know, to farm 140 acres. You see what I'm saying? It gets to be a situation, you know, you're going to have to think long and hard about it if that's all you're going to farm. My opinion. goes back to what you were saying about, you know, the scale question that we talked about a lot in this interview. Yeah. How big are you for it to, to make sense? How much um, grain uh, can you harvest uh, from the inter intercrop for it to, to, to be a, a valuable and, and efficient business. Yeah. Hey, you know, this 40 acres and a mule is just, you know, you know, it may have worked back in the, you know, the, the turn of the century back in 1800, 19, early 1900s and stuff. But, you know, it doesn't, it, that just doesn't seem to work in 2021. Super. Well, listen, um, this is very, very interesting. And, um, uh, you there's not many people, uh, that are doing, um, that have done at such scale um, integrating uh, different crops with uh, with uh, a nut uh, crop like you've done. So um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, now to share with us your your experience. 
Well, Dimitri, it's been fun. I have enjoyed this, the, the talk today and stuff. And uh, uh, maybe I've, uh, maybe I've uh, inspired some people. Maybe I haven't. I don't, I don't know. Well, uh, I guess they, they can decide that on their own. Um, definitely, I don't know everything for sure. And, and uh, maybe I look at things a little different than, than, than a lot of people look at this sort of thing. But uh, uh, I'll be true with you. You know, I was... Uh, I got in the farming business or in the farming business for, and do it for a living. And uh, if I can't make any money, I can't make a living doing it. So I have to to figure out something to scale to, to make a you know to make a living out of this sort of deal to, to you know to to afford the toys that I like to, to have and do the travel that I like to travel. Thank you so much for making it this far in the episode. And we really hope that you enjoyed it and that you learned as much as we did. As always, you can find all of the links and all of the information below in uh, the description. And we look forward to seeing you next time.